brought to you by Penguin. And it wasn't until I had done that that I even understood I was a white woman from New England. So my instinct was right to put myself in that situation. And then, so that has to be my starting point. No matter how many different people I try to inhabit, I have to recognize that I am a white woman from New England. Hello, and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Izzy Sutty. Here we invite authors to discuss with us their passions and their processes, their inspirations and their aspirations, and the secrets behind the books that we pluck off the shelves. We also ask our guests to bring with them a selection of objects that have had an impact on them or their writing. Then we find out why, for example, a postcard of F. Scott Fitzgerald or a pre-engagement ring might have had such a profound effect. Today, I am joined by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who has managed to achieve that holy grail of huge commercial success and worldwide critical acclaim. With her first book, Amy and Isabel, in 1998, she quickly established herself as a superbly gifted storyteller and one of America's finest writers working today. The book which won her the Pulitzer, Olive Ketteridge, released in 2009, topped the New York Times bestseller list and was turned into a multi-Emmy award-winning miniseries starring Frances McDormand. Her latest book brings another of her much-loved characters back into our lives. Oh, William, out this month, is the third book featuring Lucy Barton and, judging by the reviews and by my own opinion, is sure to join its two predecessors at the top of the bestseller list on both sides of the Atlantic. She claims that the whole engine to her writing is always to try and understand what it feels like to be another person. But today it's our turn to find out what it's like to be her. I'm delighted to welcome to the Penguin podcast, Elizabeth Strout. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. We're delighted to have you. Um, I've just finished the book, which I absolutely adored. All the characters have stayed with me. And similarly to when I read My Name is Lucy Barton, I feel like they're all real people immediately, all of them, even the ones who don't appear very much in it. And I know that you've spoken before about this this kind of mystical process of actually inhabiting other people. Um, have you always had that experience? You know, it's really interesting because I think I first, I mean, my in my memory, um, the first time I remember feeling that, I think I was about 12 or 13 years old, but I was working part-time at the little country store in Maine. And this woman walked in and said, she started to tell me, she was old, you know, much older, obviously. And she was telling me about her husband had had a stroke. And as I listened to her, I mean, this sounds so, well, I'll just tell you. But I mean, as I listened to her and I was really listening to her and I sort of felt a sense that her molecules were shifting into me and mine were shifting into her. I mean, it was, it sounds so woo-woo and crazy, but I'm just telling you that was the first time that I realized, oh, right. I, if you really listen and become, you can almost become her. And I was, I was really quite young. And I think back and I think, I wonder why she was telling me of all people, but she was. And so there was that moment of community. It sounds like you're so open to that, that it enables you to... Yeah, I've often thought there's a, um, something porous about me, <laughs> you know, I'm like I'm you know, a little wobbly and so things come through me and in me, but anyway. Do you find that like when you're sitting 
just sitting on a bench or sitting on public transport that people who sit next to you will start to talk to you more readily? That's interesting. I don't know that they start to talk to me more readily at this point in my life. I mean, once in a while, somebody will really start to talk to me, but I, I do watch, you know, I'll, like if I'm sitting on the subway in New York and I look across at some woman, I will, I will just sort of find out what it is to be like her. Like I might put my face in her facial expression because she has a resting expression. So if I sort of try and do that, I think, oh, maybe this is what she feels. Or I'll look at her jeans and I'll think, right, I know what that feels like to have really tight jeans on, you know, on the thigh. And, you know, so it's just, it's just something I've always done is try to be inside somebody else. And the visions, because I'm very interested in these visions. In the first book of Lucy Barton, and it's mentioned again um, in O. William, both Lucy and her mother have these visions. And I think perhaps her mother kind of a bit more so, they seem to feature more strongly in her life. Is that something that you have? Once in a while, I think that, you know, like I have, like I have written about a character and then seen that character. I mean, literally almost seen the exact person. And, and that's very strange for me. Um, that's happened a couple of times, but I don't know if those are visions. I don't know what they are. You know, I just, I just accept whatever. But with Lucy Barton and her mother, I thought, okay, let's take this and push this. Let's just make it a vision. Let's just say they both have, or the mother particularly, has that particular kind of gift or whatever you want to call it. Is it ever surprising when it, because I know I've read that you were stacking the dishwasher and the character of Olive came to you yeah I was I was loading or unloading the dishwasher it was something about the dishwasher and then I you know I was just doing you know the domestic foolishness that one always seems to have to do and and um and she just showed up I sometimes think when we're doing mundane tasks yes well I just think our minds are more unleashed or un, unlatched or unleashed I'd love to talk about shame that jumped out to me as a really big topic why is it important to you to discuss shame? You know, it's interesting because I didn't even really know that I was discussing shame, honestly. I was just putting Lucy's story out there. And then, of course, I realized because she came from really, really the bottom of the barrel. I mean, she came from a very, very sad background that she, not only does she not know who she is in the world, but she would have incorporated a sense of shame because of who she was as a child and because of everybody saying, oh, we don't want anything to do with you and your family. And I knew a couple of families like that when I was a kid. And there was one of the boys from one of those houses who went to school with me and he's since passed away, but he sat in front of me in third grade and the teacher walked up to him one day and she said, you have dirt behind your ears. Nobody's too poor to buy a bar of soap. And I think I even put that in the original, my name is Lucy Barton, I gave her sister, because I never forgot it, because the whole back of his neck got so bright red, and he was so more, and a horrible thing for her to say. And even at that age, I understood she is dealing with him like he's not even a person. And that stayed with me so much. And so when I thought about writing about Lucy Barton, I thought, okay, let's, let's make her one of those kids and let's give her a voice and let's let them have their chance on the stage. When these characters come to you initially, is it sometimes 
more of a simplified version of how they end up being? Or is there a kind of essence to them that, you know, okay, this is what she is? Yeah, I think there's an essence. Um, And I just, I thought Lucy, I thought, I mean, I knew she would come from that. And then I knew that she would be what they call a survivor. You know, some people, some people just come from these terrible circumstances and they just manage. And then others, of course, don't. But so I, I immediately thought of Lucy as, you know, because William says to her, you were filled with joy. And I always understood that about Lucy, even in My Name is Lucy Barton. I thought she has such capacity for joy. And where in the world does that come from? You know, we don't know. We just don't know. And so she has this capacity for joy, and yet she has this hindrance from her childhood. We're going to come on to your first object now. Um, this is a ring, but not just any ring. Will you tell us why it's so special? All right. So my great aunt Dot, she was one of my great aunts who lived nearby on the dirt road with my great uncle Roy. And they, you know, they just loved me. They absolutely adored me. And I can remember walking into their little house one day and my uncle said, you know, I was just thinking about you. You're really the answer to an old man's prayers. And it was such a thing for me to hear at that point in my life. And, And then I can remember if my mother would take me to the summer music theater and I would come and perform the whole entire thing for them the next day. And they would, you know, they would be like, they, anyway, so my uncle died and then my aunt showed up and she gave me um, this ring, which she said was her pre-engagement ring and she wanted me to have it. And it's just always, it just reminds me of, you know, when you are so loved by somebody when you're young, it never, ever goes away. And they're both just part of me. Were they, I know you've spoken about your mother being such a good storyteller. And I love what you said about you were in the parking lot once and she was saying something like, I don't think that woman's looking forward to getting home. (laughs) I just love that. I love it. Because again, it's like a tiny nugget of that woman's life. Exactly. And it just sparked my imagination so much. Was that the case with other members of your family, like your Aunt Dot? No, um, that was really only my mother. My mother could do that so quickly and, and make the world very, very interesting. No, my Aunt Dot was just, she was just a vessel of love. But she was not a particularly good storyteller or even interested in stories, but she would let me perform those foolish little things, you know, without, I mean, she'd just be happy to see me all the time. Well, family and love is such an enduring theme with your work. Obviously, romantic relationships as well, which we'll come Mm -hmm. on to later, feature heavily, but... The relationship between mother and daughter, especially, was both with Lucy and her mother in in the first Lucy Barton book and then with her own daughters. Why do you like writing about this? Do you think you'll always be fascinated by it? I think so. I mean, I I guess, you know, I think my own relationship with my mother was a very complicated one and and she is still alive. And, And then when I had my daughter, it was an entirely different kind of relationship and it was very restorative for me to be able to mother a daughter. And so having been a mother and having been a daughter, being both, I see the the wide range of things that it can encompass. I think it's endlessly fascinating. It is endlessly. It, you're absolutely right. It is endlessly, endlessly fascinating. <laughs> I think even when, you know, when you meet people and you think they have a really great relationship with their mum, it's so straightforward. And then 10 years in, you discover some massive secret. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, I mean, there's, it's just always so interesting. 
do you think your mum's storytelling, I was wondering how much of an impact you feel she had on your ambition to become a writer. Do you think you just always would have done it? Or do you think she really shaped? I think it was my mother who made me a writer. I think um, probably it's only occurred to me this late in life that she probably wanted to be a writer herself because she taught writing in high school and she taught it at the university. And so, I mean, she taught expository writing. She didn't teach creative writing, but she was always interested in writing. She, at a very young age, gave me notebooks and told me to write down what I had done that day. And so I did. And so from a very, very young age, I just thought in terms of sentences. And I thought that whatever I had done that day was important because my mother had told me to write it down. So I think she was a huge influence. And then again, like you mentioned, when we went into town and she'd say, oh, there's, mm, look at that woman, you know, her coat's not hemmed. I wonder what's going on with her. You know, and I would just be so she was always, always inflaming my imagination. And I think the combination just made me understand from a very young age that I was a writer. Do you think if for some reason you had been prohibited from being a writer, I can't think of it because it's completely hypothetical, what would you have been, do you think? Well, one thing I would have loved to have been, but I'm not qualified for it. But the only thing that I can think other than being a writer that I would be so drawn to, um, I would love to be a physician and, you know, to diagnose diseases and to help people with their bodies, you know, because we all live inside our bodies, but I, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to get into med school. So that's just a super hypothetical thing. And if I hadn't, then I have no idea what would have happened to me. <laughs> Cause you trained as a lawyer, didn't you? Yes. And that was a fiasco. Do you regret yeah. doing it or do you think it... You know, yeah, it's it's only many years later that I realized actually that wasn't a bad thing for me, even though I dropped out and then I went back and this and that, because the training itself, I do think ultimately helped me because I, I had just so much emotional stuff that was always just flowing down me. And I think that, you know, the law is very, it's like you strip away that. You could just go straight to the facts. And I think actually that training ultimately was very good for me. Um, then being a lawyer, which I was for six months, I was just terrible. And you didn't enjoy it? Oh, no. I was just awful at it. I couldn't advocate on behalf of anybody, even though I believed in what I was doing. You know, I, I mean, I was working for legal services and I believed in my clients' cases, but I just was terrible. I just couldn't do it. It was terrible. <laughs> it's good sometimes to look back, isn't it, and go, thank God yeah, I don't I have know. to do that anymore. I know. It's so true. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to move on to your next object now. Um, you've got a postcard of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Can you tell us a yeah. bit more about that, please? Poor thing. There he is, sort of toward the end of his life, looking a little, you know, haggard. And I have always loved Scott Fitzgerald. But when I started my first Lucy Barton book, I was reading a book called West of Sunset by Stuart O'Neill. And it's a fictionalized account of Scott Fitzgerald when this picture was taken, actually. And there was something I just honestly sort of felt the presence of Scott Fitzgerald as I was writing that Lucy Barton book. And then again, with the O. William thing. I can't explain it, you know, but it's just, I mean, I almost feel embarrassed to tell people because it was a very private thing. It's weird putting it into words sometimes, I think, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Because it's like the words don't give credence to what I'm actually trying to yeah, say. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Um, I really like his writing and I'm fascinated by his relationship with class and wealth. Um, yeah. 
exactly. It's interesting, isn't it? And how disturbed, I guess, he was, you know. Such a sad man. Oh, my goodness. He suffered terribly. Yeah. And very interested in class, which I am interested in class as yeah, well. Yeah, that was what I was going to come on to because for me that really jumped out as well as the shame and kind of being connected to the shame in places. Was it a kind of conscious thing for you to write about class? No, I didn't even realize when, when I wrote Amy and Isabel, I didn't even realize that was a book of class. And it certainly is. It's all about class. I mean, you know, Isabel working in the factory and then thinking that she's better than these women and that she should have been, you know, a school teacher and having to come to terms with that and getting over it. But I didn't even realize that that was a book about class until somebody mentioned it to me. And then I realized, oh, of course it is. And then I I realized that even before that book, I had been writing about class without even knowing it. I've always been interested in class. Do you generally think about where your book's going at the point of starting it? Or do you just kind of go with the your instincts and not think, oh, I'm going to put this in, I'm going to put that in? No, I go with my instincts. It's always my instincts. I, I never, I never plan ahead. I can't. I'm sort of incapable of it. And I don't even write from beginning to end all the time. I just think, oh, here's a scene, here's a scene. And then hopefully if it's a good scene, it will make its way into the book eventually. But that's that's how I work. And you're writing down on actual pieces of paper, aren't you? Yes. A lot of times I, I used to do nothing but that. And now my handwriting has just gotten so hard to read sometimes that I, I actually work both back and forth now between the computer and, but I but for years and years, it was just, always by hand originally and then I would put it into the computer and rewrite it and print it you know but it was always a very messy process which I liked. Something people might not know about you is that you used to do stand-up comedy and I'd love to hear more about that I've been doing stand-up for 20 years which I can't believe and I've recently started again I gave up when I had my second kid Um, but tell us about how you started it. Oh I would love to hear about your career in it I would love to hear about that but um when we first moved to New York City, I was very interested. I mean, I've always been interested in comedy, and we would go to the little stand comedy clubs in the village. And what occurred to me as I watched these different people is that people laugh at something because it's true. So I was having trouble with my writing, and I kept thinking, I'm trying to write truthfully, I'm trying to write truthfully, but what's what am I not writing that I don't even know? And so I thought, I wonder what would happen if I put myself inside that kind of pressure cooker situation where I was responsible for people laughing. What would come out of my mouth? So I took a class in stand-up comedy, and it was very terrifying. I don't know how you've done this for so long. And every week, somebody else would drop out of the class. And then those of us who made it through had to do a final at a real stand-up comedy club in New York. I mean, a big one. And it was terrifying, and I didn't let anybody come. But the whole point of this is that the routine that I had created was to make fun of myself as a white woman from New England. And it wasn't until I had done that, that I even understood I was a white woman from New England. So my instinct was right to put myself in that situation. And then, because that's when I realized, oh, well, okay, this is who, that's actually who I am. So that has to be my starting point. No matter how many different people I try to inhabit, I have to recognize that I am a white woman from New England. And it was helpful. Did you ever want to carry on with it? No, but they did. I mean, no, because I thought I'm honestly, I feel like it took two years off my life because I was just so (laughs) nervous. I mean, the whole entire night I thought I would die, but, but they actually asked me if I wanted to come back and audition for a Tuesday night, you know, regular thing. And I said, I couldn't believe it, but I said, no, thank you. Cause I would be dead by now (laughs) if I had done that. I would just be, I was just, I don't know how you've done it for so many years. I mean, it's, it was really terrifying. 
Is it terrifying for you? It's more frightening when I'm doing new material. So right. what's happened right. now is that I've done quite a few hour long shows and you get to know that show very well. Yeah. But I'm writing a new show now and that is nerve wracking. Wow. Yeah. But when I read, I read um, something that you said about how you write, you said it's like you're putting your hand into a box and you can't see what's yeah. in there and you run your hands over them. I really loved that metaphor. I was thinking actually last night I did a gig with new material and I thought this feels similar in that I'm going on with all this new stuff. I've got nothing to kind of hang on to. But I think in a way, stand-up is like the f- purest form of storytelling. It's like... Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. How did it go last um, night? It was fine, actually. Yeah, there were bits... Oh, thank <laughs> <Yeah>. God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you're killing me here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, don't worry. I won't oh, reveal that I'm no. about to <laughs> stop it all and, and give up. No, no. Yeah. no it was, no, it was good. So it was useful. It was um, kind of right. frustrating in places because you see the bits that you need to tweak. And if you move one word, it makes such a difference yes. to the joke, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And taking stuff out. I guess. And actually that ties in with, do you find that as time's gone on, you're better at editing as you go and you can, when you hand in a first draft, is there less to do to get to the finished article than kind of when you started? I think there is only because I've been doing it for so long that I can recognize something sooner than I used to be able to recognize it. Although it will still take me a while, but, but there'll be a little thing in my mind that will think, hmm, probably not going to stay. And then it will eventually go, but it sometimes takes me a while to let it go. But, but every book is different, you know. Do you have an editor that you go back to who you've got a strong relationship with? Yes, I had, I had um, an editor. She died two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. It was a terrible, terrible loss for me because I mean, she absolutely believed in me and I don't think I ever would have written my name as Lucy Barton without her because she read the first 30 pages and she just loved it. And she said, you must write this. You must go forward with this. And I, I'm not sure that I would have, but she was so excited about it. So she, she was a huge champion and I have a lovely editor now who's taken over, but she was an enormously important person for me. And then I have um, one reader, my friend, Kathy Chamberlain, who has read my stuff for 38 years now. I met her when I first came to New York and she's my first reader and she is always who I hand it to before anybody else. And is that normally when you finished a full draft, as it were, or would you hand her those kind of scenes and go, what do you think of this? Well, um, at times I would, I would like hand her a full chapter. I mean, I don't hand her a scene. Well, maybe I do once in a blue moon. I'll just say, do you think this is worth, should I just throw this away or something? And she'll say, well, maybe, or maybe not, you know, or like she said recently, don't, don't throw that away. Don't throw that away. But mostly I give it to her either when the manuscript is finished or maybe halfway through. But I try and give her enough to be able to work you know, with it more than just a scene. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's come on to your next object. And um, it's something that's sacred to a lot of writers on this podcast, actually. It's um, a coffee mug. Can you tell us a bit more about yes. it? Yes, there's my coffee Oh, I mug. love it. It looks, it looks I, I handmade. Know, fabulous, right? Right, it yeah. is. So my husband bought me that years ago. And just like Lucy Barton always enjoyed breakfast with her second husband. And it's become my favorite time of the day with, with my husband. And, um, and there's just something so cheerful about that mug and so wonderful about sitting there having my coffee with him and then taking the second half of it, you know, 
to my studio and that's all I will have until the morning is over. Was it a surprise when he gave it to you? Did you know that he was going to get you that mug? No. And it just seemed like, oh, that's sweet. That's nice. You know, it didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but it's, it's become my thing. (laughs) Do you think you're a good gift giver? You know, that is such an interesting, that is, that's an amazing question because I don't think that I am as good a gift giver as some people. Like my daughter is such a good gift giver and my husband is a brilliant gift giver. And it always makes me feel like, I mean, every so often, you know, I can do it because I'll see, and I'll think, oh, bingo, bingo, bingo. But I can't do it as regular, you know, if there's a birthday or Christmas coming up, I can't, and I'll, I'll have to think ahead so long. And then, and I feel like that's a terrible thing about me that I can't, I can't nail something for them as quickly as they seem to be for me. It makes me feel terrible. I wish so much. I Are you a good gift giver? So I think I used to be, so basically I think I'm good at giving gifts of a particular type, but if people don't like that type of gift, then I'm screwed. So like I used to like making things for people and an ex-boyfriend I made a lot of things for and he loved that. But with my partner now, he hates surprises. So in his eyes, I'm not a good... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a different story than, you know... That's, that's, uh, that's his thing. Are you good at receiving gifts? Um, I hope so. (laughs) I think I am. Yeah. I'm always surprised that, you know, at any gift I get, I'm like, we can get it so wrong with gifts though. I think that can be quite, um, if you get something and you really think they're going to love it and then they don't, and you can tell they don't, perhaps, I think it can be quite frightening in a way because you felt yeah. like you knew them. And- I do have a friend and I spend a lot of time thinking about what to get her. And I think, okay, this time I've done it. And I just never feel like I have. And I feel like, wait a minute, <laughs> what more can I do? <laughs> yeah. That's why I love the tulips. The, the tulips, it's Lucy's second husband, David, isn't it? Who always yeah. buys her tulips. I really loved that about their relationship because it's like, he knew that was a simple gift that she wanted. I know. The unknowability of another human, I think actually um, is for me the biggest thing about your work that jumps out to me, that there's a joy in trying to know another human and there's an acceptance that we can't ever know them. The unknowability of someone, I think, changes in the light of grief. I wondered if you felt the same. Yes. And, and Lucy is grieving, you know, at the, she says that at the very beginning of the book and then she says, but I want to talk about William here. And then she, she goes on to feel bad about William as well. But, um, but yes, I think it heightens everything, you know, to be in a state of grief is like being almost in an alternative universe, you know, when you're, when you're really put into that position of grief and therefore everything comes a little sharper while other, you know, the quotidian things of life fade a little bit and, and everything else gets brought into a bizarre relief. And, and um, so, yeah. There's a bit where she gets in a taxi cab. It's beautiful. She's crying. And I think the driver says, what's wrong? And he, she says, I just lost my husband. But the previous yeah. scene is not connected to David. And I thought right. that is exactly how it yes. is. Yeah, it's funny. I just was thinking about that scene the other day because I was thinking about taxi drivers in New York. And um, and when I wrote that, I thought, okay, that's 
Good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Do you find right. that you sometimes finish early? You know, if you hit something like that and it's like, yes, yes, yes. yes. And then you say, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go enjoy the rest of the day now because I've done something really good. Yeah. And if I stay here and keep muddling it up, then I won't have as much fun this evening. Yeah, I do. I know that feeling. Do you do something for a treat then? Or do you go for a walk? I very, I will often go for a walk. Yeah. Especially now that we're back in Maine or even in New York, I would go for, you know, a walk. But yeah, walking is, is how it all kind of gets settled and unraveled in my head after having been scrunched up all day, you know, working. Yeah. I feel like the walking thing is a bit like the dishwasher, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. Your mind can just go. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take an opportunity now to listen to an extract from the brilliant O. William. In January, William told me, on the phone from his lab, and after we had spoken of the girls, that for Christmas he had given Estelle an expensive vase that she had admired in a store one day. And she had given him a subscription to an online thing where you could find out about your ancestors. I could tell by the way he told me that he had been disappointed with the gift. Gifts have always been important to William in a way I have never understood. But that was smart of her, I said. What a good idea. I said, you know almost nothing about your mother, William. This could be good. I do remember that I said that. And he only said, yeah, I guess. This was the William who was tiresome to me, the petulant boy beneath his distinguished and pleasant demeanor. But I did not care. He was no longer mine. And when I hung up, I thought, thank God. And I meant about him being no longer mine. That was a reading from O. William, narrated by Kimberly Farr and written by my guest today, Elizabeth Strout. A link to the audiobook edition can be found in the programme notes of this episode. And while you're there, please do take the time to rate and review the show and by all means, recommend us to your friends. Um, we've got time for one more item and it's a book of many words. Right. <laughs> it's my thesaurus. And what's so interesting to me about, you know, I, I've always had, this is my latest one, which is probably 10 years old, but my others have gotten very frayed. The funny thing about the thesaurus is that I love having it and I love looking into it. And only once in a while will I actually use a suggestion. That's what I've noticed. But it's it's a funny relationship that I have with it. I mean, because I, I feel very comfortable having it sitting right there next to me as I work. And yet, Probably, you know, eight times out of 10, when I do look into it, it will always, it will never be as helpful. <laughs> it won't be that helpful, but it will make me realize, oh no, my word is better. Let's just go with my word. It sort of helps me in a negative way or a positive way, negatively. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. It kind of doesn't give you anything on paper, but actually it does. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever go on the thesaurus.com or anything, or would you always open the physical book? You know, I tend, I tend to open the physical book because that's when I, you know, I've, I've always had one. And so I just, I just tend to open that. But I actually think that this one's not been quite my friend that that first one was because, you know, that was with me when I was young and yeah, it's, <laughs> whatever. It's weird, isn't it? They can have exactly the same things in them, but 
Yeah. Right. I'd love to know more about your writing routine. Um, we know you start with the coffee, you have half with your husband yeah. and half when you're writing. So you don't eat until... I don't eat until... I put off eating until I'm really just about to pass out okay. hunger because one because you know once I eat I've recognized this for years and years once I eat it somehow changes the energy and even though I can sort of continue to work it will not have the same sharpness or clarity that it does if I'm just not eating anything at all and then you know I'll start to faint and I'll have to eat something but then it will be that will be the end of my real work day yes so I put it off as long as I can. And then when you do eat, is it something really simple that it doesn't take long to make? Yeah, it's it's like the same thing every day, basically. And what is that? <laughs> it's either a tuna sandwich or a chicken salad sandwich that I can get right down the street. Oh, okay. Oh, so you go out. <laughs> yeah. So I walk down and I say hi to, you know, the people and, and then bring it back. But then, but then it becomes a different kind of work day, you know, like I might work on something different or I might go back and look at the shape of something, but the creative part of the day is somehow gone. When you had, when your daughter was young, was it harder to have, asking for myself, by the way, with two young kids, to preserve those moments? It, it was, it was very hard. And I learned, that's when I learned to write in scenes. That's when I stopped writing from beginning to end, because I realized, you know, I would only have like maybe two hours every other day to work on my own stuff because I was also teaching part-time and that's when I could use, you know, that's when I would find a scene that had what I call a heartbeat in it. And if there's a heartbeat to the scene, then the scene stays. And that's when I learned to spend those two hours writing scenes that would hopefully have a heartbeat. And that's how they began to connect. When you say have a heartbeat, can you tell us a bit more about what you mean? You know, it's like, it's something that has some truth to it, I guess is what I'm saying. There has to be some truthful thing going on in that scene, as opposed to the wooden scene of getting Isabel out of, you know, grocery store. And, and so if it doesn't have that snap to it, then it goes on the floor, literally, and then try again. And then when it has that snap or something to it that I realize, oh, okay. And maybe it's only, maybe it's only a paragraph, but I will recognize them. This is actually a paragraph that says something. Do Have you ever lost a notebook or any piece of writing? Yes, I have. I lost a bunch of notebooks um, when we moved out of our place in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And I thought they were in the basement and they weren't. And I've always felt uneasy. <laughs> yeah, it's like losing a diary or something, isn't it? Yeah, well, yes. It was like that. And, and I've always felt like a little queasy, like, where did they go and who has them? And I hope they're all destroyed now. Have you ever let go of a character, I suppose thrown it on the floor, if that's what you do with the whole characters, and then for them to come back to you later and reveal themselves again? You know, um, that's an interesting question. I think, honestly... I think if they if they're on the floor, they don't ever get back up. That's my sense. If they're not yet my friend, you know, as I sort of think of these people eventually as becoming, then then they might hover around. You know, they might stay on the edge of the table or on the far end of the table or something. And then I'll realize, 
Uh, like Pete Barton, for example, Lucy's brother, who in um, that collection of stories that I wrote, you know, I re- he was somebody who just sort of, because he's Pete Barton, I realized later, he just sort of sat there quietly waiting for me. And then I realized, oh, you're really, you need some attention. So he never fell on the floor, but he was one of those who just sort of waited for me, as Pete Barton would. Yes, he's waiting patiently for... Yeah, his chance. Do they ever surprise you? Like, Do you ever feel like, oh, I shouldn't actually make them do that, even though you thought that you wanted to? Or do you feel like it's a kind of organic process between you and the character and your... Yeah, that's how I feel. That it's an, It is totally an organic relationship. And then trying to figure out what the reader needs. Because I will, I do think about the reader a great deal. And I'll think, okay, what, you know, as, as the story is getting more pulled together, I'll think, okay, what does the reader need now? Is it some sound or is it a visual, you know, like, you know. Yes. Yeah. That, I think that's tremendously interesting. Finally, we like to ask our guests about a recent book they loved that they'd like to share with the Penguin Podcast listeners. What was the last book that you just couldn't put down? The last book that I couldn't put down was just recent and it, and it was Fathers and Sons by Turgenev. And I had read that years ago years and years ago and um but I hadn't read it for for so long that it was really almost like reading it for the first time and I just found it to be so compelling I loved it I just loved it I was so sad when it was over that was just a few weeks ago a week ago for anyone who hasn't read it is it difficult to describe what it's about or could you summarize it well it's about two fathers and two sons. Um, But one of the sons is really quite a compelling person. He's really written in a very, very compelling way. And you think, oh, wow, do you like him? Do you not like him? Or does it even matter if you like him? And, And then, I don't know. I don't know what it was about it, but it was just, it was just so, and it was so interestingly narrated. I had forgotten his narrative method with that book, which was just basically to tell it right at what end to say, well, and this is what happened. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Look at him. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, this is yeah. it. Um, thank you so much. I've absolutely oh, loved talking you. to you. Yeah, it was wonderful to talk to you. Oh, good luck with your stand-up. This is so exciting. Thank you. <laughs> I really admire you for that so much. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. 